Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Gadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. Joining me today is senior writer Sam Rutherford. Hey, Sam. Hey, how you doing? Doing good. Um, uh, Sherlyn is off. Uh, she's also taking a much-needed break this week. But she did want me to relay a message. An early birthday to Sam Rutherford. Hello, Sam. Happy birthday. Hey, thanks, thanks. It's this weekend, uh, right? Yes, it is this weekend. My wife uh, recently asked me, he's like, do you, do you remember how old you are? And I had to say, yes, yes. Yeah. And then uh, I think I just don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, there's certain milestones that are like still meaningful. Like you can you know, rent a car at 25 and some other stuff. And I'm way past all those. And so they don't mean anything It's like, anymore. yeah, it's the renting a car. It's waiting till 30 and then 30 hits and you're like, okay, wh- whatever, man. Whatever until yep. you're 40. Um, but anyway, congrats. Happy birthday, Sam. I hope you have a Thank good you. one. Do you have anything fun planned for the weekend? No, uh, just trying to take it easy because of the, all the recent reviews. Oh, so it's just like my 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 reward is not having to work on the weekend. The best, that's the best birthday gift. Uh, I've noticed a couple times this week. I, I got to nighttime. I was like, wait, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to yep. don't have to test anything. I don't have to write anything. It's amazing. What is this weird feeling? What is this weird feeling? Well, among the things we have been reviewing are the MetaQuest 3, which I put up my review this week. Sam, you did the Pixel 8 and Pixel 8 Pro. So we'll be talking about both of those in this episode. And uh, joining us to talk about the Quest 3 will be a special guest. He's coming on soon. As always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, you know, you can subscribe anywhere, to be honest. You can also drop us an email at podcast at Engadget.com. We'd always love your feedback, so please send us some notes. So the MetaQuest 3 finally launched this week. My review is up on the site, and joining us to talk about it is Norm Chen, co-founder and executive editor at Tested. Hey, Norm, how's it going? So good. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Like, uh, Norm, I specifically wanted to get you on because I looked at your your coverage of this thing, and you published an hour-long review of the Quest 3. And I just have to say, like, that that's one thing that made me feel like, man, oh, I thought we went a little far by putting, like, 10 minutes on our Engadget video. But no, Norm, <laughs> you, you went deep for an hour. Um I yeah. And thank you for putting all the, chapters, all the chapters on all the different sections. That that is like incredibly awesome. Uh, thank so you. Helpful, well, uh, so I, I gotta give credit to yeah. our viewers. The, the chaptering was done by uh, our viewers uh, who okay. we appreciated. We just copy and pasted that. Uh, they, they went yeah yeah. So so, uh, but gotcha. thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun making that review. Awesome awesome yeah. It was good to watch everybody go check that out at the t- on the tested YouTube channel. I reviewed the Quest Three. I quite like this thing um, for you know for a bunch of reasons. I do think it is a nice upgrade over the Quest Two, but I think the big downside is that the Quest Two, when that thing launched, it was two ninety nine. You could tell anybody on the street, like, hey, you want to you want to dabble in VR, you want a taste of this stuff, spend you know a decent chunk of money, but not you know half of a thousand dollars. But you could spend that money, hop into VR, don't have to plug into anything. The Quest 3 starts at $500 now. It goes up to, what, $630, $650 if you want the 512 gigabyte version. Um, 
This seems like the upgrade for the Quest 2, but not the entry point for new people. Norm, what are your overall thoughts on the Quest 3? Yeah, I think, you know, from a technology standpoint, it is an upgrade. It gets us inches closer. You know, it's a, a big step closer to the what people want, like the, the general layperson, I guess, when they hear about VR. And, and you know, for, as people covering VR for so long, we know one of the big challenges is communicating what that experience of presence is like, what, the, what, what is appealing, because there are so many different use cases for VR. Uh, in, in many in many cases, they're you know, Meta and slash Oculus, right? They're they're this is like a second try from three years ago, um, uh, getting the mainstream. They spent so much money. I'm sure they sold the Quest 2s at a loss. Uh, and to their credit, you know, with all the advertising, you know, if you watch like sports events, like they're all over, they, they heavily advertised it. Timing kind of worked out almost in their favor just because people were at home, a little more disposable income, you know, eager to try it out. Uh, and Quest 3 is like, here, here we go again. So it's for people who already believe in VR and who maybe purchase a lot of games to do PC VR. I feel like it's a, such a worthwhile upgrade, especially if you didn't buy into the Quest Pro last year. Um, all the technology is meaningful. All the, the the things that they've done in research for the lenses, for displays, even the, the on the software side, the hand tracking. Uh, but really, for a mass market device, because no longer are we 10 years into VR, these you know, niche devices, uh, is this a PlayStation 2 to PlayStation 3 moment, right? And I don't think, I think they're still in the, like, this is a, a, a niche category moment. Yeah, this is, uh, this feels like the upgrade, it, the VR was already a niche category, but this feels like an upgrade for a niche of a niche, right? Like, because I think newcomers are still probably better off with the Quest 2. You could also probably find that thing used or refurbished for less than $300, um, I think it's worth remembering last year, Meta raised the price of the Quest 2 to 400 because of supply chain issues. So for them to go back to 299 I guess it feels like a bit of a discount, but no, that's, that's what the Quest 2 launched at. I would have been impressed if they had somehow gotten that thing down to like 250 or even or even less or something. But they have wasted so much money on VR. I feel like that's not not possible anymore. Um, one thing I want to shout out here, yeah, this is a new headset that has high resolution, um, right, new lens designs, high resolution display behind it. Um, it's lighter, but I think also most importantly, it has two mixed reality, full color mixed reality cameras on the front, um, which enable this sort of like view into the real world that we've never had before in a, in a Quest headset. Like it's been black and white before, right? Um, what's the Quest Pro color? I forget. Quest Pro's color, it's a single mm -hmm. camera RGB. And I'll, I'll yes. do one correction. It's actually technically heavier than the Quest 2. It just yes, feels yes, lighter yes. because all that hardware is... And these are the, the subtle things, right? If you're just looking at the spec sheet and say, you know, finally does, you know, RGB pass-through. You know, plenty of other VR headsets did RGB pass-through. Vive Pro 2 did that. You know, Quest Pro did that. Pico does that. But, you know, what I think Meta's going for is... And, and this is a hard problem to solve is... Uh, stereo correct, reprojected, pass through where objects in your near field in the distance look exactly right where they should be. If you close one eye, you close the other eye, and if you take off the headset, you know where your hand is, where your phone is, it's exactly where that is. And that's not an easy problem to solve because where the lenses are, even though though they're closer to where your eyes are, they're not depth correct. You know, your eyes are kind of recessed into your skull, and so they're processing these images at you know, 60, 72, 90 frames a second to actually place them where your eyes are. And that's a really hard thing to do. Um, it's not, it's, it's not it's a, impressive. A, yeah. Yes. There's also a depth sensor in between the two cameras, which the, the, the Quest Pro did not have. So that's no, yeah. kind of wild. Developers, developers actually said that the developers who I've spoken to who worked on the Quest Pro 
said that that was part of the original design spec when they were prototyping software for Quest Pro. Yeah. It, Zuck had it was mentioned intended it. Yeah. to have that. Yes. Obviously, the rumors were such that you know uh, you can do depth sensing in a couple of different ways. You can have you know stereo depth. You can do a time of flight sensor. You can do what you know Apple on the, the FaceTime cameras do, structured light. Um, and IR cameras, there's always been this privacy concern. So I think when they launched Quest Pro, there was already privacy concerns with eye tracking, with face expression tracking. And so whether it was a cost cutting measure or just to get ahead of the privacy concerns, they decided not to do that there. And so I'm not sure that the depth sensor in the Quest 3 is exactly the same hardware as what they intended in the Quest Pro, but the benefits of it are definitely significant. It's very, I, I can feel that difference. So Sam, you had some time with the Quest 3 2 on the preview. Um, I know you've used a lot of VR headsets as well. Like, do you have any thoughts about this thing just as an upgrade from the Quest 2? Yeah, and it's something that like I thought about more as I was watching um, Norm's video. And it, it feels like... What I really appreciate is some of like the the maturation in design technology because like you like I don't wear glasses but you were talking about like hey it's so much easier to just wear glasses you don't have to, you don't need the prescription lenses and even just like the little things like the the uh, the charging dock like even the charging dock compared to the Quest Pro's charging dock it's so much easier to use the, you know the, the 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 controllers just fit right in there's no more tracking rings. And it's so, uh, but also like the the face plates and the padding and just like the overall weight distribution and all that. And it feels like we're really getting to a design standpoint where it is just more accessible to, you know, hop in and out. People, you know, you don't have to worry about like, hey, is my face going to fit? Are my glasses going to fit? How, how am I going to wear this thing? Even just like little stuff like, like being able to take the, the loops, uh, the tassels off the controller super easily. And so that's thing like to me, that was like one of my big impressions about it. Just like it feels like we're getting to a point where headset design is just a lot more understood in a way that works for everybody. It's been, I mean, it's been what, almost a decade at this point since we've got consumer VR headsets out there. So yeah, we damn well better get some understanding here. Um, one thing I couldn't help but think of too, Norm, is also Apple's Vision Pro, which kind oh, yeah. of yeah. <laughs> is a similar pitch. Uh, Apple's never saying VR, but they are saying they are talking about spatial computing and mixed reality. And essentially, the Vision Pro has, you know, uh, the RGB cameras looking out. Like a lot of the time, you will be looking out into the real world. From what I remember of the Vision Pro hands on, I think you got to try it too, right, Norm? Yep. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, it, that uh, was a I'll nice is, clear view of the real world. Not as this totally. is not as clear. Yeah. Well, I would say it was a nice clear view in the controlled environment that we got yes. to use it in, which is a yes. very evenly lit uh, indoor in the living simulated living room with very clear flat walls. Um, and to piggyback off of what Sam was saying, I think what you're saying is you know a friction, right? Hardware friction. And if you want to use the yes, the, the computer analogy or the game console analogy, it's like it's it's plug and play, uh, the equivalent of plug and play, but you know put on your face and play. Uh, which I, I think we're getting closer to that for for the the hardware side. Uh, you know, the, the fact that hand tracking could work, and the rumors being that they may potentially release a hand tracked only you know skew, where that's how you would get to the lower price point, right. and not even need the controllers and support for things like micro gestures and whatnot. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but I think they would still have a lot of work to do on the software side. You know, a lot of the frustrations that even Quest Two users had on on how difficult it is to pair up with friends, update your software. It, it, again, going back to the console analogy, you never want to have a case where, you know, if you're using a device once a week or once every couple of weeks, the first next time you turn on your PlayStation, you got to go through firmware updates and system updates and game updates. Like, VR still has that issue where uh, people aren't using it as frequently as their smartphones, where it, it needs to be more seamless, so easy to get in. 
Uh, and Vision Pro, I think, is more uh, addresses a lot of the the comfort stuff and a lot of the just kind of um, uh, just with their with the the, the pass through cameras and also the, the the display on the outside. It feels like the thing they're going for is just making this as normalized to use in a in a environment with other people. Just kind of shaving away the weirdness, but Vision Pro crucially does not fit glasses, right? So you got to get those prescription lenses. Um, there, there, there is that initial friction for you to achieve the sort of like perfect Vision Pro world. I do want to say, like, uh, it just really struck me just the simple ability to like double tap on the Quest Three and see the real world felt. It just felt groundbreaking to me because yeah, we had passed through it before, but it was like black and white. I used the Quest Pro a bit, but I. That was not a great headset. Like I did not spend much time in that uh, because there just wasn't much compelling. There wasn't actually much built for the Quest Pro. So the Quest 3 has a lot of this stuff, has depth sensing. So I could actually tap out of VR, look at my phone when I get a text, look at some Slack messages and pop back into VR. In the past, I'd have to like take off the headset completely or with some of those like great Windows Mixed Reality headsets, like you could flip up the visor. Those things are pretty much dead right now. And that whole concept is dead. I, I felt less trapped in VR with this. And I think that's a big thing. I, did you feel that way, Norm? Absolutely. And I, I, you know, the, the double tap on the side, that's been there since Quest 2. To their credit, they've been updating hand tracking and on all these software things. And so for people jumping in, they get inherited all those benefits. Uh, it's an interesting debate about like what these headsets are for. Because you know, through two, three years ago, with their pivots to the name Meta and the metaverse being such the big pitch and, and creating basically a whole industry just on that concept... Uh, you see them walk walking back from that more uh, this year with mixed reality being the pitch here. And I think some of that's an answer to Apple because their their headset is not a uh, a metaverse pitch. It's not a, a in virtual environment pitch. And there are certainly virtual environments. They call them immersive environments for cinema and, and, and the like. But there is a, they're calling it spatial computing. And I think Quest 3, even though I, I don't think Zuckerberg specifically said spatial computing necessarily in the keynote, I, I really enjoy that aspect of the Quest 3, where the past through the real world isn't necessarily about putting things in walls or these augments or whatever, but it's about making the objects that are projected in front of me, the this virtual web browser, you know, the just the, the Facebook feed, the, the messenger chat rooms, all that stuff uh, live more naturally in a play, in, in, and I feel less isolated. And there's that extra comfort where I don't have to be in a, a virtual home environment, where my home can be the environment. My initial headline for this review was like Vision Pro Lite. And I feel like if I ran with that, the Apple people would kill me. So it, it feel it does feel like we're almost there, though, because to be clear, when you're in mixed reality mode and you're looking at the real world, you can pull up this sort of transparent tray in front of you. You can run up to three specific um, apps, not not like VR games, but it can run like the web browser. It can run WhatsApp. I paired WhatsApp from my phone to the Quest 3 and I could see all my WhatsApp chats and everything looks so super crisp and clear because the displays are much better. Um, I could just sit there and like have like a multi, like basically multitask in the Quest Pro, in the Quest 3 while also still seeing the real world. I think the promise of the Vision Pro is sort of like, well, you also get to, you get a better look at the real world. So you can also like have... You know, you can both project your Max display into the Vision Pro, but you can also still see stuff on your iPad or still see stuff uh, from your phone more easily. Um, I think the quality of the Quest 3's cameras, uh, it lo actually looks good when we record video in your video, uh, Norm. Like the in-camera footage looks really nice. It looks almost 1080p. But I'm, when I'm looking at it with my eyes and when it's spread across the VR headset, it's not that 
like high quality, right? You, did you call it more like a digital point and shoot? Than That's DSLR? what, yeah. I, yeah. I, we're, we're, we're in that point and shoot days where images are so grainy. There's processing to make a muddled. And I think even on the Apple side, the Vision Pro side, they're doing heavy processing. You know, every time you like zoom into an iPhone image, you look at their display stack, there's, there's post processing that happens on iPhone photos. They're doing the same kind of algorithms on, on a, you know, on a, uh, you know, 90 frame per second basis on the Vision Pro stuff. That multitasking that you mentioned, that's like my favorite stuff to do on the Quest 3 right now. These progressive web apps where it's web browsers, where Spotify is there. Like, and I think Meta has kind of dropped the ball because there was an opportunity with the Quest Pro for them to really get developers to yes. make these progressive yes, web yeah. apps, especially with the more RAM on the Quest Pro with that 12 gigs. Like three windows, that's all I need. I don't need to necessarily mirror my desktop. I just want a good web browser. I want Slack. I want like Discord, you know, a, a good Reddit app or something. And that's great. Now I'm, I have browser instances and it's good enough where I can do like YouTube TV, you know, you know uh, Twitter or, 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 or YouTube and videos look fantastic. But I want these native apps. And I think that's where the, the developer conference where, you know, where they announced Vision Pro, like, that's where Apple has that leg up. If they can convince developers to make these native spatial apps, um, that's going to be a big selling point uh, for people who are willing to spend that money. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised there's not like a beautiful in- interactive Instagram app or something. Like I really lean into what you, you own it. Just like highlight it, Facebook. What do you? What's going on here? Um, what were some of your favorite experiences when in testing the Quest Three, Norm? Because I really enjoyed uh, the Kurskasat game, which is sort of like it's sort of like the Kurskasat, you know, YouTube videos. They have like really cool science facts and stuff, like videos that teach you things. But the game itself can both teach you things and show you like the scale of VR. I didn't really get to try um, First Encounters, which is their mixed encounter, their mixed reality game. I know you tried that, Sam. Because it just wouldn't work on my headset. I have to like, I get to get a new build of it or something. So I didn't get to try that, unfortunately. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a demo. I mean, it's a demo. It's not a full game. It's like a short, you know, fifteen minute arcade experience to to show you the potential of of that mixed reality of mapping your walls. And I go deeper into this in my video about. Can you the, describe the, the first ways encounters, you can by the map way? the walls? Sure. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. You, so you go through the room mapping process. The depth cameras allows the system to recognize what is a wall, uh, and so once the four planes of your walls or more than four planes up to your ceiling even uh, are mapped out, uh, they will then you see video of your wall. But then they actually render geometry behind it, and these aliens blast through and create these cracks and holes in your wall and fly through. It's like, it's like cool. remember that uh, that Microsoft uh, HoloLens demo we saw, I don't, like uh, maybe it was like CES 10 years ago, with like these spiders crawling through the wall. It's finally that in your home, uh, but as opposed <laughs> to optical pass-through, it's video pass-through. Magic Leap had a similar demo for the first Magic Leap 1, I believe. Like there was something yeah, related yeah. to Dr. wall Dr. Yes. It was like Sprout or something. Yeah, yeah so... I know, Sam. You saw this in your demo. Like, was it was this a compelling thing? Would it is it enough for you to upgrade from the Quest Two? I think for me, what I appreciate about it is that it made it, it was like carried a lot of the techno technological generations and advancements, and kind of distilled it into a way that felt more intuitive for people who have never used VR. And that, that's kind of what I appreciated about it. In that, like, it's doing things that you didn't think. VR could do with just a single headset because people used to like, hey, we used to need lighthouses and you know all these different things, and it's like, oh hey, this is really cool, and to see that kind of distilled down into a self-contained package because I think we've all seen that like, oh, we had mobile VR where you're putting headphones or you're putting smartphones in in headsets, and like that was a kind of intermediate step, 
And then we had, you know, tethered PC and PC VR, which is great, but it's not, you know, that's not where the mainstream kind of direction is. And kind of getting that into a self-contained standalone headset was just, you know, really nice kind of, oh, hey, here, here's a, a pause and, you know, here's where the evolution of VR has, has turned into. Gotcha. I think that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, like mm-hmm. you think about all the earlier adopters, everyone who spent $1,000 plus on a full uh, index set or you know a Vive set, and, and you know even when when the first Oculus Rift came out, you didn't come with any track controllers. Came with an Xbox controller. You're paying north of five hundred dollars. You had to set up two cameras, all this USB setup. It was clunky, and even though it was a consumer product, you know in terms of the the polish of the packaging and, and the, it was it was an early adopter device. And this even more so than the Quest Two feels like the friction of that is is gone. That hardware friction. Yeah, we we've made some progress. I I can't help but think about like where we are now though with VR and everything. Like I, this is how I was feeling in the PlayStation VR two reviews. Like that's great hardware, but I don't. Why should you spend you know six hundred fifty dollars for this thing um, on top of like having the PlayStation five on top of like you know not knowing if there are going to be more games coming out after that initial launch? Uh, so I want to talk about like where we are now with the metaverse and the state of VR overall. I know podcast producer Ben wants to chime in and you have some thoughts on like the metaverse as a whole too, right? Yeah, because Engadget is not my only thing. (laughs) I actually just finished a stint as a story editor on a show that I'll plug later on about the metaverse, metaverse communities. And so this is a good opportunity to widen the discussion to like, where is the metaverse right now in October, 2023? Yeah, that's a. I mean, it feels like Zuck basic never really even said metaverse during the last uh, Connect conference, right? Where he unveiled the Quest Three. How do you like? What do you think? They they changed their name to Meta Norm. Like, what do you think the company is? How are they thinking of the metaverse at this point? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, Horizon Worlds is their metaverse right now, right? And and you know, if you look at the various definitions, like the metaverse is just this fancy way of saying you know multiplayer gaming, social social applications that have some type of back-end interconnectivity. Uh, and whether that's a uh, Horizon Worlds type of, type of thing or if someone else is going to build it, you know, the way I think about it, you know, Rec Room is its own metaverse. VR Chat, obviously, all these applications where people are building communities and memories and infrastructure on their own. Uh, Fortnite a lot of those can, is its own metaverse. Like it's, absolutely. It's all, yeah. Roblox, Fortnite, absolutely, right? Um, so I think it's stagnant. It's stagnant in that the money that they invested on MetaSide and Horizon Worlds really didn't pay off and wasn't necessarily like the priorities weren't there. Uh, you could tell they tried to do the things that other multiplayer communities had had success with, but were limited perhaps by, you know, they couldn't infringe on IP the same way, you know, VR chat users could. And, <laughs> yes, and, that's true. And also as a response to Apple, seeing potentially, you know, maybe, maybe the, the best, maybe that metaverse stuff is going to still be more like, five or 10 years from now. Um, there's still, the, the Quest 2 definitely wasn't the right platform. It didn't overcome just the the minimum barrier to entry to get people using the headsets on a regular basis for them to even consider what type of virtual community they want to be a part of. So to add some numbers to what you just said in terms of Horizon Worlds being stagnant, I found an article published just about exactly a year ago today in the Wall Street Journal According to some documents that were leaked to Jeff Horowitz, this is the same reporter who um, helped break the story of Francis Hagen, Francis Haugen, the uh, Facebook whistleblower. Um, 
So according to some of these documents that he got a hold of, there are just about 200,000 monthly active users. And that was a year ago. On Horizon Worlds. Yeah. And that was that 200,000 number was a revision downward, which likely means that there are probably fewer users on Horizon Worlds today. There's definitely a fraction of that using it today. Like, that, that's the whole thing. And I did some testing of this. Like, I did some of the, like, activities. Uh, I did some, like, guided tours with Facebook about this stuff. And it's cool. Like, I did some of the virtual meetings. And the virtual meetings are cool as well. Uh, if you go back and look at our coverage, um, the, I did one of those, and I ended up sitting next to Zuckerberg's avatar. Oh, uh, yeah. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's, like, one of those things where it's like, oh, this kind of feels like I'm sitting next to Mark Zuckerberg. That's weird. And I had this whole thing where I was like, okay, well, I guess I got to pay attention to where my virtual hands are, right? I got to like, <laughs> I got to be somewhat proper here. And Did you have to worry about where your oh, legs absolutely. were? Or was that I, wa- I worried about where I was looking. I didn't want to just be like an avatar staring at Mark Zuckerberg because like then social conventions come in. So that was kind of interesting too. But if you go look at other video coverage of it, I think we put up a video of it and other people have me in their videos. You look at my avatar, it's just freaking out because it's like it can't track fully where my hands are. My hands were like in front of me and I guess something was interfering. So I really like virtual meetings, but there's so much friction there. Like unless you're already wearing a headset and then you can say, hey, you want to pop into a virtual room and talk or something? I think that could be cool. I don't think anybody's going to want to put on a headset just to do a meeting. You know, I feel like that's that's also another problem. Yeah, you have to already be in the headset already. So they have to make compelling all the other things that you'd normally be doing on a day-to-day basis, you know. Uh, and then also add, and they had asymmetry, so people could be joining that via their laptop, via their phone. You get a windowed into that. Uh, I, I think asymmetry is undersold. I think you've got to have it. You're, you're, when we're still talking about the single millions, you know, the, the, the seven-figure to maybe low eight-figure number of people in headsets, uh, for many of whom are just have them in drawers, uh, you got to make software, you got to make the metaverse more than just people with headsets. Um, and it, it doesn't need to be fully immersive. I think that's what we're learning. It doesn't mean it need to be completely virtual environments. It can be a mix of flat screen. It could, you could be in headset using a flat screen window, like looking into a Zoom window, but still be in a headset. Like you have to allow for all these multimodal ways of, of interacting. Seems hard. I think that that's the ultimate thing. Like uh, uh, Facebook was like, we're going to do the metaverse. And this seems like a 10-year project, not like a three or even five-year yeah, project. Every, yeah. every time it's like they, they, bit, they bit off way more they can chew. And it's like, you know, hey, you can make a Verizon, you know, a Horizon Worlds, but it's still siloed from the rest of the VR, AR community. And I think like, you know, you have this playground, but then you need other people to build on it. And I think that's the challenge is like when you have – you know, a self-contained thing like Horizon Worlds, it's not like it's fully or as, you know, as accessible as like the internet where, you know, you can build a website, anyone can build a website instead of building it on a certain company's platform. And I think, you know, that 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 is like going to be a big challenge. And even like, you know, talking about like your, you know, uh, social interactions, you know, they didn't bring the the facial and eye tracking from the Quest Pro over to the Quest 3. I think it was a smart business move, but in terms of like overall VR de- development, you know, at, at some point we are going to have to need those trackers and sensors to be able to have, you know, more realistic, more lifelike interactions with other people. So, yeah, you were just talking about like the lack of people to make the metaverse, especially Facebook's metaverse, more lively feeling. I think that part of that is because Horizon Worlds is like a Disneyland of the metaverse. It is not allowing 
like the full width of human experience to be translated into the metaverse. It doesn't really want the full width, including the seedier parts of the human experience to be translated to the metaverse. In fact, didn't the Horizon avatars just get legs like last year? Just like last year, yeah. And so in this show that I just finished, one of the really compelling case studies that I fought to get into uh, the series was this uh, idea VRF gym that was in VR chat and it was just a bunch of people doing workout classes together. The thing that got the people into the workout classes is the fact that it was basically workout classes for furries. <laughs> These were incredibly yeah. detailed VR avatars with like movable tails and um, you know ears that you can twitch cutely all decided they wanted to do aerobics together. And that doesn't seem to exist in Horizon Worlds yet, it can't. which could be a huge hindrance. And where were those taking place? Those weren't weren't they happening in VR chat, Ben? Yes, it was happening in VR chat. VR chat is where it is. Um I reviewed this movie We Met in Virtual Reality last year. It was at Sundance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's a documentary filmed entirely in VR chat covering how people have made like real life friendships and relationships. Uh I think one couple was getting married based on their like they live in different countries, but they hang out in VR chat and they have like a connection to each other. You got to remember like the internet. Um, I think we're all, we're all old enough to remember like when the internet started, right. Or at least like have uh, some memory of it. And I remember the nineties and I'm not even going back to like, um, you know, uh, old school message board days, but like in the nineties when it was like AOL, CompuServe and Yahoo, those were sanitary environments, but then you could easily go to the main, you know, web and go to rotten.com or something or go like yeah. stumble into a very bad IRC chat or stumble into a place where you're like, Oh, I should not be here because this is gross or also really weird. But also I, I think that is, that's the breadth of human experience, right? It's just like the worst parts and the best parts of humanity open to live as it, as it can. I don't think well, VR can do that yet. Right? People are going to want to be uh, horny in the metaverse <laughs> and horizon worlds does not allow yeah, you yeah, to be horny. Yeah. The What's Disney analogy is really, I think, apt because it, it's their vision, their guided exp- – and, and I think it's a combination of it being not only family-friendly because of all their liability, uh, but also really uh, banking on user-generated content. Like they know they only have so many resources to create the, the entertainment, and they looked at what Rec Room was doing, what Roblox was doing, and they wanted to create a sandbox that hopefully was compelling enough for users then to propagate. Uh, but it wasn't the – I don't think it's that necessarily that content that – gets people interested it's all the emergent behavior and emergent interactions that a place like vr chat allows and that's not necessarily doesn't have to be seedy but when you have fewer guide rails then you allow for people to just create weird things uh, it's, yeah that, being open to weirdness i think is is kind of absolutely mm-hmm. and and the weirdness can be disembodied it doesn't have to be analogous to our experience in the real world, IRL. And that's one of the appeals of VR chat. One of the appeals of VR and the metaverse is that the rules of the real world don't have to apply. Just, I'm talking about just, like, just basic senses of identity and physics. And, and, and so Horizon Worlds, the, the, the building blocks they've created are way more restrictive that way. Mm-hmm. I think that that feels inherently stifling to Norm. I want to ask you before you go, like you are still seeing new VR headsets. I also saw a review of the big screen beyond VR headset, which I'm also playing with. Um, and also something from a Chinese company that I, I refuse to take because I was like, I know how big that is. 
I know that's it was the the new Pimax one, right? Pimax Crystal. The Pimax <laughs> Crystal. I saw that thing. I was like, that is that's a TV on your face. I don't get that out of my house. Don't even ship it to me, please. Um, you're seeing all this cool stuff happen, Norm. But how do you feel about VR as a whole? Right, like I do think the hardware is getting better, but I feel like the games and experiences and the overall like industry is just kind of stagnant at this point. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you where the places I'm optimistic. I'm op- optimistic about VR hardware because I think even a small company like a uh, big screen can create a, a, a best best in class desktop VR headset. Like they are doing, they're, they're moving nimbly, moving fast and sourcing really cutting edge hardware in terms of like the same, you know, micro, uh, uh, micro OLED panels that Apple would be using. Not, not the same you know, resolution, but the same kind of technology enabled to develop their own, you know, optics and piggyback off of what Valve is doing with SteamVR for tracking, right? Like that makes me optimistic. Uh, the things that I'm less optimistic about is potentially where this converges with augmented reality um, and the unsolvable problems there. You know, you look at Apple Vision Pro, and one way to look at it is that as advanced that technology is, it is this intermediate step, the perfect version of Apple Vision Pro, if it solves all the problems of tracking and displays and clarity, is still this first step in their mind to something that's maybe an optical pass-through system that's a small form factor. And those physics problems, those battery problems, uh, don't feel like they've been solved yet or don't, I, we, I don't know if researchers have a clear path forward even to, to get there. So when they say, you know, this could be 10 years out, it's really like kicking the ball down the, down the road um, because like, it's, there are fundamental physics problems that may prevent these things from ever being uh, a reality. The dream seems to be like true spatial computing, which could be glasses, but also people hate glasses, you know, like I, I, that cannot be the thing. So I've been talking to other people and thinking like, I mean, it could be holographics down the line. It could be something else like a, a digital thing just appearing in the real world, but is is presenter powered by something outside of you, not even something you're wearing. So I think that uh, we also saw that company what was it? The company's name is escaping now, but the one with the the wearable AI powered device that can project onto your hand, like we we are seeing different ideas kind of going around. So I don't know, maybe we'll see something like that. Is holographic something you've seen at all, Norm, or excited about? Yeah, I've seen a couple of companies do more like classes free displays that have you know volumetric displays in front of you for interaction. There's like look, the looking glass. Yeah, look, I love looking um, glass. Yep. I have one on my table. I, I love that. You know, it's a multi plane view, almost light field. They're like and it's affordable too in terms of like just making the most out of your portrait mode photos. Uh, the the thing that helps is that tracking seems to be a solved thing now, and all of these things will need some type of tracking. Every device that we're going to have is going to track relative to each other, whether you're wearing glasses, your phone, or a thing on a table, and the fact that on the background, spatially, there will be a layer that will understand where things are relative to each other in the real world, that then you can overlay, whether it's on your glasses, whether it's projected on a display, whether it's on your phone. Like That actually feels like the the, the the infrastructure of the metaverse that needs to happen. Um, and that feels like a thing that can be solved. That's like true ghost in the shell territory. But yeah, who knows how long that it's going to take. I want to be uh, real quick here. The company I was thinking of was Humane. And we talked about them when we were talking about the Johnny Ive and Sam Altman, like potential AI product. So again, that is something where it's like, it is a screenless device that is using AI. It's projecting onto your hand. It's a different form factor, but not something you're wearing on your face. I think the whole idea of wearing something in your face is uh, probably 
I don't know. There, there's like an inherent limitation to that and who can try that. So anyway, thank you so much, Norm, for joining us. Anything else you want to mention about the Quest 3 or the state of VR at this point? Um, uh, there's a lot more accessories, right? I mean, the, the, the games launch, I think yeah, it's, it's a slow launch. They wanted to get this out before the holiday season, but there are 50 games that are coming out this year. So there's a lot more content to try. I'm personally excited for Lego Brick Tales that port from the, the, the console and PC game, um, and, of course, Asgard's Wrath and uh, the new Assassin's Creed Nexus. So we'll be looking forward to trying those out. Oh, yeah, I want to play that new Assassin's Creed. I am playing the the new one, the Mirage, that just came out. So that would be that would certainly be a lot of fun. Where can people find your work online these days, Norm? Uh, they can find it on Tested's YouTube channel, so youtube.com slash Tested, or I'm on social media on uh, Twitter uh, at nchan uh, and Instagram at normchan. Awesome. Thank you so much, Norm. And also, Ben, I think you wanted to like, where, what was the thing you were working on that you want to talk about? Yeah, so it's a show called Is This the Metaverse on Digiday.com. So if you want to learn about uh, metaverse communities and also advertising in the metaverse, because Digiday, Digiday. is, after all, an advertising industry magazine, check out Is This the Metaverse on Digiday.com. Awesome. I love the folks at Digiday. I'll be checking that out. Thank you, Norm. Thank you, Ben. Thanks to Norm again for joining us. Um, Sam, I really want to know what is going on with you and the Pixel 8s. This feels like, um, you know, a pretty big step forward for Google for its like AI dream. How do you feel about these phones? And so it was interesting. It's like while I was writing this, it's like, obviously, Google has been leaning into the AI thing for a long time with the Google Assistant and whatnot. But like, as I was using these products more, I'm like, holy crap, like, I actually care about AI again. It was feeling like that excitement I had like four or five years ago is renewed, but in a different way because of how Google is using it on these phones. So we have the new Tensor G3 chip, and even just in general performance, it's noticeably faster. Um, you get better battery life too, which is great. Um, both Pixels have new actual and super actual displays, which are fine too, but it's really those AI tools, which I think is really starting to separate the Pixel from all the other things because you know Apple has done great hardware for a long time. Samsung has, you know, really led on the hardware, um, you know, game for a long time. With They have the best mobile displays on the market and stuff like that. You know, first uh, company to make a real foldable phone. But, you know, Google's bread and butter has always been software. And now adding AI into the mix with that, especially for, and I think my favorite feature is obviously Magic Editor. Because it's just like, it takes that lasso tool and the content aware filter tool from Photoshop and it puts it in the palm of your, your hand. And it's just so easy to use. Um, you know, you take a photo. The one caveat is that you do have to upload it to Google Photos first. Um, so if, you know, if you have it set to like your photo set to uh, backup on Wi-Fi, you might have to wait till you get home or do it manually. Because that stuff is happening that, on the server, right? It's not happening on your device. So It's not happening wait. on the server. I just okay. think it's like they want to have a backup in the cloud somewhere. so that like, <laughs> In case they mess it up. From. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and then, but... You know, you can always, uh, you know, back a single photo up manually. That's pretty easy. And then all you have to do is hit the magic editor button and then just highlight something with your finger. Um, you know, you can either, then you can choose to delete it or you can uh, tap and hold and drag it around wherever. And, you know, it's not, you know, a magic, like one button fixes everything. But if you just want to remove, like, you, you know, go check out the review, see the photos. I took a bunch of photos um, and you just like, I took a photo at a wedding of a recent coworker. Uh, congrats, Valentina! Congrats, Valentina! By the way. I see, yeah, photos of you and Sherlyn and folks there. It's, it looks fun. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, you know, I was able to edit out, like, a distracting neon exit sign in the background. <laughs> I was able to, just, like, edit yes. out the, like, a monitor from, like, the DJ booth in the background, too. And it's just, like, these are really subtle things that, like, if you can remove distractions from your photos, it just, it keeps your focus where you want it to be, which is the subjects, you know, the, the happy couple in that photo. And it's just, like... It's it takes a lot of the headache out of hey I gotta go pull pull up Photoshop Mobile I gotta learn how to use it it's so easy. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's those features are like distinct enough to lean somebody away from a Samsung phone you know or even an iPhone like would you get a Pixel just for these AI features? I think the whole like iOS Android divide is a harder bridge to cross. Um, it, it's it, it's like I've completely given up on like hey, you should really switch operating systems because it's like people don't want to learn. It's that. really hard, How, yeah. Yeah, however, if you're like, if you're a Samsung person and you've been like curious about Pixels, I think now is a really great time to switch because on top of having that AI, Google has been working on their hardware. So, and I think especially the Pixel 8 Pro is a really great option next to something like the S23 Ultra because not only is it cheaper, but uh, Google has completely upgraded all the sensors uh, on the phone, so they take in more light. You still get that 5x optical zoom, and now with the AI, it just like you, you feel like you have more tools at your disposal, um, which is something that I think everybody, which is like mm-hmm. you, you always run yeah. across that one photo where it's like, hey, this photo is great, but it would be just that much better if I could get rid of this one thing or if I could move something around. And you know, it's kind of painful in a way because you know, if you want to like you know, Photoshop your friends standing on top of a statue, you know, you can do that. Are these features, these are only available through the Pixel phones, right? You can't just do it on Google Photos manually. Yeah, and, and right? you know, that's, that's part of because, you know, Google is like leveraging the, the uh, NPU and the machine learning performance in the Tensor G3 chip to power some of these features. And so that is one of the downsides. This is also the first time where I'm really noticing like significant lag uh, between like, you know, having uh, an AI generated whatever. And so you'll do something and you'll sit there and you'll see it generating um, and use like one Mississippi, right, two Mississippi, right, right. and it, it takes, you know, four or five, maybe even six seconds, depending on what you're doing. And e- even for something as simple as like generating an AI wallpaper in Android 14. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, it's funny. There's no reason Google can't just support this on photos on the web. Like that. Yes. I know it relies on MPU on the system, but your, your servers have all the hardware you need. So I, I wonder if Google will just keep it to pixels for now because this stuff is expensive. Like they're doing anything, doing a Bing AI command uh, takes a ton of water, takes a ton of energy to even, uh, you know, get that stuff there. So I guess putting most of the workload on the phone is one way to kind of get out of that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're digging this, Sam. I almost feel like we're seeing the the sort of like ultimate form of smartphones from all these companies, right? Like Apple is all about refining what the polish that it has done so well. Samsung is like, I don't know. I have all these ideas. I'm just going to try everything. But also we will pour as much money as we can into the foldables and into crazy zoom cameras, into big screens. And Google now is just like, well, we said AI, what, seven years ago, eight years ago. Now the AI dream is kind of here and they're building a machine kind of around the idea of generative AI. I guess good timing for them. You know, because this seemed like a lost cause for Google just for your, up until a couple of years ago. I feel like the Pixel phones were cool, but not like not really distinctive compared to Samsung or iPhone or anybody else. Right. Right. And th- this is like sort of redefining Google's like signature capabilities in a way that is 
tangible. And like everyone talks about like, oh, chat GPT can do, you know, help you write an email and Midjourney can make a, a thing. But you're always having to sit down on your computer. You got to play around with the prompts and the queries. And th like this just makes it really easy. And it's also interesting that you mentioned that kind of server processing because, you know, as good as Magic Editor is, uh, there are some features that Google announced but have not arrived yet, like uh, Video Boost and Video Boost with Night Sight. And that's, you know, you're taking a video and you're uploading it to the cloud and then Google's doing some processing and then it's downloading it back to the phone, except that it's not available yet. And I think this is also kind of highlights kind of the pros and cons of like what I call Google's software first approach to uh, phone development, whereas you know, software has a longer timeline. There's, you know, that always that old adage that like software is never done. It's just abandoned eventually. And so, you know, we're seeing this where Google's announcing these cool features and it's not arriving until December in a feature drop sometime. And so I don't know if there's going to become a trend and I really hope it doesn't because, you, you know, you want all the capabilities that were announced to be available on day one. Um, and, and it, another interesting thing is that like, so people are kind of bringing up the whole idea of magic editor was like, Hey, screenshot or didn't happen. Right. right? right like, right. are we, are we into the age of like, everything is manufactured? And I think there, I, I, there's two sides to that. Um, the first is that like, it's a weird question just because like, we we already live in the world of Photoshop and Facetune. And it's like, you know, we see people on social media, like editing their bodies to make themselves look better. And, you know, it's already that easy. And so I don't really think this is pushing the needle one way in a direction one way or another. Um, it's another editing tool. And, you know, it's not, you know, you're not creating like a whole new image. This is magic editor really is adjusting what's on the frame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, the other part of that is um, uh, just because, you know, it's editing doesn't mean it's really, you know, manufacturing a new thing. And that said, Google has sort of adjusted the tagline for Google Photos itself to be, hey, this is where you store your memories. They're not saying photos explicitly anymore because it, it is a little bit more nebulous in terms of like, hey, what's a photo? What's something that's been generated by AI? And, you know, what's in between? They're not really saying so, reality, too, I would say. Like, this... Mm, I almost feel like philosophically we're seeing the differences between these companies as well, right? Because um, I think, like, Apple's focus with the iPhone cameras has always been, like, realism, you know, or the ability to capture the shot as you see it. Uh, they have, like, their own, like, AI processing tools that will sort through a bunch of images to find you the best image, the best possible image that you already took, not without post-processing and stuff. And now they're doing a bit of that. I feel like Samsung was always about, I want your image, I want the most fun images you have, right? Like they, they, they always they like- They were like a hyper, hyper, hyper super saturated, yeah. like yeah. extra realistic version because yeah, super bright colors, like, you know, sometimes their processing goes over sharp. Exactly. And you know, you see that every once in a while, but like, you know, they're trying to make things as delightful and like, attention copy and possible. fun yeah and now google's also mm -hmm. like ai magic right ai all the things um you know even the very definition of what a photo is i think is starting to get blurred because sure you could do a lot of this stuff in photoshop but also that's hard not everybody knows photoshop that requires skills but now you could do it with like the touch of a button to remove an annoying photo bomber from the back of a photo or something yeah i do feel like thing it is like fundamentally changing the notion of photography. It's kind of fascinating that Google would do this. Uh, do you think Apple would follow up with similar features? It's interesting because as we saw at like the WWDC not too long ago, 
Apple was kind of like mum on the whole topic of AI in general. They, you know, it seemed like they specifically avoided saying AI um, completely. And I think, uh, I think Apple is. This is something Apple is considering, but it's you know, in typical Apple fashion, they are not going to be the people who are great breaking ground on this. They are going to work in the background to polish and refine it, and then hey, maybe it comes out a little bit later. But once it comes out, it'll be a very you know put together product where, you know, there won't be as many like maybe moral or ethical questions about it um, because those have been already answered by, you know, other apps and software. And so they get to kind of sidestep those questions and then just focus on, hey, we're just trying to make your photos look as good as possible. Yeah, yeah that makes total sense. So overall, it seems like you you really dig these phones, Sam, like good upgrades from the Pixel 7 or Pixel 6. Like at what point are these like must haves for people? If you have a Pixel 7, I, I it's really hard to recommend anyone upgrade right. after just a yeah. year. Yeah. But if you are on the Pixel 6, I would consider it a lot more deeply Especially if you are like, you know, your phone is the battery is not great and you have, you know, other issues with the phone and like, hey, it might be time to upgrade. That was also a slow processor, like when it launched, right? They were using like a mid-range Snapdragon, I believe, at that point or a mid-range equivalent uh, Qualcomm chip. So right. you would um, see a big speed bump from this. Yeah. And so the, just in terms of like general performance from the Tensor uh, G1 to the G2, you didn't see a big jump. And I've noticed that... Um, it definitely the phone feels noticeably faster in the jump from the Tensor G2 to the G3 on the Pixel 8. Um, definitely. Gotcha. So okay, Pixel 8, Pixel 8 Pro looks good. Um, check out Sam's full review on the site. Uh, Video is going to be incoming soon. I know. Um, we also reviewed uh, Sherlyn reviewed the Pixel Watch 2, which is kind of interesting too because she scored this thing as a 79. Headline is not leading the way, but no longer lagging. Uh, do you have any impressions on this one, Sam? So I've been using the the Pixel Watch uh, 2 as well, and I think that headline is actually really like really encompasses how I feel about the the watch as well, because when the original Pixel Watch came out, like the battery the battery life was by far the biggest issue. It would not even make it through a full day. It would like if I put it on in the morning, it would be dead by 9 p.m. And for something that's supposed to monitor your health and fitness all the time and do sleep tracking, that just it just wasn't an option. And so now I'm getting a full 24 hours of battery life with always on display on all the time. And so they've they've fixed that. That said, like they've switched over to a new charger that uses like actual like pins on it instead of wireless charging. And so the old charger is incompatible, and even the new one, it only fits on the watch in one particular direction. And it's just like it's weird little issues like that. And the design is almost exactly the same, and there's no larger model, uh, larger model, which is something I really wanted for a long time. And I really feel like we're kind of running into the situation where, like, you know, you have the product cycles, and you know, people are planning for two and three years out. And I think they had already originally planned this as a two-year product yeah, cycle, yeah. and so you know, the design was locked in. Maybe next year we'll get some tweaks or a larger model. That remains to be seen. Um, and, you know, they have also redesigned a lot of the Fitbit app, uh, so, you know, it's easier to use, and things are just incorporated a lot more uh, tightly. And I think that is, like, one thing that, like, I think Google had been struggling with for a while is that integration of we have all these Google teams and we have all the Fitbit teams, and now everyone has to get together uh, and play nicely. And I think they're kind of starting to pick up uh you know the rhythm on that mm -hmm. and so everything feels just a little bit more, more harm uh, harmonious it took a while like it took a long time before we really start to see the fruits of the fitbit and google stuff like that whole acquisition so 
this is cool. Like, it's a cool looking watch. Uh, Charlene brings up like a specific point that the crown kind of sticks out so much that she sometimes accidentally hits it when moving her wrist because it looks like she's wearing the watch way high up. That seems annoying because my sometimes my Apple watch gets up that high. So, hmm. Yeah. I mean, th- this for me just goes back to like, I think the the Samsung rotating bezel is like the greatest marriage of like analog and digital design. And I like the crown's fine. I, I And I, I can see how that would happen on certain people. I think it might be more prone, like you said, if you wear higher up on your wrist. Um, but it, I haven't run into that myself, but I can definitely see that happening. Do you think, um, I mean, yeah, it seems like Google has reached feature, somewhat feature parity between the Samsung watch. How close do you think it is to the Apple watch at this point? I think just the legacy of the Apple watch, we're almost at like uh, 10 almost years 10 of years, Apple yeah, watches. Yeah. And so like they have like, so many accessories, so many apps, so many um, bands and uh, things, so many watch yeah. faces and bands, and like that whole ecosystem just feels so much more mature than anything Google has to offer. And you know, you can't really blame them; they've only been at this for two years now. But and so, but at the same time, there's also no like apologizing for it either. It's just like I was trying to set it up uh, the other day, where it's like, hey, I want to have my um, like, a, there's no Hue app for for the Wear OS as far as I can tell and it's like I just want to be able to adjust the colors of my lights for my watch which seems like the most natural thing in the world and you know there is some smart home integration where you can turn lights on and off but I want you know a little bit more granular control and for that like it seems like I should be able to change lights from red to blue just on my watch without pulling them out my phone but that doesn't really seem like an option at least right now it seems like you should be able to just talk to your watch to make that happen instantly too like you know assistant stuff would be nicer how how is uh is the ai powered assistant on the new pixels by the way yet yeah so you know it has you know full voice integration so if you want to ask us stuff you know it's still getting the information from your phone but yeah you can do that that's cool that seems tempting um i'm starting to test out the windows 11 build with uh court uh, not cortana but copilot and I, yeah, I'm thinking of an editorial on this. I will say, like, it is, it's nice to have this stuff at the touch of a button, right? Because somebody was asking, you know, what's the difference between these two LG OLED TVs, right? The A3 and the B3, or no, the B3 and the C3. And it's like, that's one of those things where I'm like, I even, even I know the TV mark. I'm like, I don't actually remember the specific differences. And you can ask Copilot and just like, hey, give me a table, compare these specs, please. And it'll do it. Um, it is that thing where you do have to sit and wait. Because it is kind of doing a miraculous thing, but it's like back in the old days when you were on a dial-up modem and you were waiting for a 100K (laughs) image to load. Like you're sitting and waiting for magic to happen, which I think, I don't know if people are going to be put off by that or just like, will they give it a break because what it's giving you is sort of like miraculous information. I don't know. So, okay. I will have more on that in a bit too. Uh, Any other thoughts, Sam, on the Pixels, uh, uh, Pixel hardware? Because you've seen everything at this point. Yeah, I really think that like, when you know Google kind of reintroduced and redesigned the Pixel Six with the Tensor G One, you know we were kind of like getting a taste of what direction Google was trying to go, and now like three kind of you know three generations into that like relaunch, um, it really feels like Google's kind of hitting its stride in terms of like, hey, this AI hype cycle buzziness has been you know every, like it's all people have been talking about for the last six months. But now they're kind of cutting through the noise in a little bit and making making AI easy to use in a way that doesn't feel scary and also doesn't you know feel 
it, like it's a challenge. Like it's very easy. And I also think that like, especially for Magic Editor and like how that plays into Google Photos, um, it's almost like romantic in a way because by saying that like, hey, this is where you store your memories. This is like, you know, when you edit your photos to remove detracting elements, that's how you want to remember the the and that's how you remember it in your head and so by making you know the photos match up with the memories in your head because you're not going to remember that exit sign or whatever i think it's just like it almost it almost feels a little like romantic in a in a very kind of storybook way yeah, and yeah. i think that is maybe like a little bit of ai optimism um which seems you know kind of refreshing in a time when everyone's very doom and gloom about it can it. be can be helpful but at the same time like what is apple doing right apple is letting you use the pro cameras to create a you know uh spatialize a 3d version of photos and videos so you, that you can actually revisit your memories with the depth you remember but without like cleaning it up with ai so it, again different strategies to achieve this idea of storing your memories just kind of fascinating i'm looking i, I don't have the uh the 15 pro max yet but i'm looking forward to testing that stuff out um, okay. Thank you so much, Sam. And uh, stay tuned for further updates on all this stuff. I think, uh, have we had hands-on with the new Pixel Buds Pro feature yet? I think those are dropping eventually, right? Yeah, I don't think so just yet. But yeah, stay tuned. Likely Billy Steele will be covering that for us. But okay. Thank you so much, Sam. Let's move on to some other news. And first up, I do want to note this correction from Wired. Last week, we brought up this story. Um, it was an editorial from a former DuckDuckGo executive who posited, um, based on a slide material from the FTC versus Google trial, that Google was doing this thing where it was uh, changing your search queries after you made them to, you know, to make them more money, basically to push different ads, to push certain results. And at the time when we discussed that, we said, this is an editorial. Didn't look like she had, like, we didn't actually see the proof of this. And it turns out not too long after that, uh, Wired issued a formal, like, retraction of this piece. Uh, there's a statement now, if you go to the link for that article, after careful review of the op-ed, how Google alters search queries to get at your wallet and relevant material provided to us following its publication, Wired Editorial has determined the story does not meet our editorial standards. It has been removed. This is the nuclear option for any news site. So specifically, if it's an- op- Full retraction is full always retraction. like a big thing. I mean, yeah. it was in the editorial section. So I think everybody gives op-eds a little bit of leeway to be like, well- yeah, this is your this is your opinion, right? But I think it was hedged in a way that it felt like reporting, and also other people really ran with that story too. So, hey, uh, yeah, I this does not mean this thing is not necessarily happening. It just means that that article did not fully prove that it was the case. So uh, it's still in question, but a really interesting, um, yeah, move from Wired's part there. And I think the tone of the piece was kind of what got people yes. a little confused because yeah. it was almost like asserting fact yeah. based on speculation. And I think that is where things can get a little bit um, a little bit weird, uh, especially when you're like writing an op-ed, but it doesn't feel – it feels more like an investigative report than an op-ed. Uh, and I think that was you know one of the big issues for that story. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we will – yeah. I'm certainly like intrigued by learning the inner workings of how Google search works, but – that clearly was not it. So, yeah, just keep that in mind, folks. Moving on, another thing that um, was certainly big news over the weekend. We saw the news around um, the surprise attack by Hamas in Israel, the resulting, uh, you know, um, basically resulting strike, the strike against it by by Israel, too. So now there is a full-on conflict happening in the Middle East. And one thing 
people have been talking about and noticing is that X, which I will always call Twitter, has basically failed completely. Um, a lot of the trending topics that were uh, that were in place over the weekend and throughout this week were completely incorrect. New, like either outright lies or misinformation. Um, I saw a lot of blue check accounts going around spreading misinformation because they they get paid based on engagement, right? So if 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 you people if tensions are high and people you think people will react to this thing you're putting out, doesn't matter if it's true or not. Um, so and anyone yeah. anyone can just get a blue check nowadays too. Well, you can get a blue check by paying for it, and then Twitter supposedly pays you too. So I just want to shout out two things that I think people should pay attention to here. Um, there's a great episode of On the Media which is one of my favorite um, podcasts and radio shows from WNYC. Uh, the midweek episode uh, specifically talks about like how X has failed here. And there's a conversation with a Reuters reporter about this, Avi Asher Shapiro, who has been studying you know, the way social media uh, works for a long time and the way uh, misinformation has plagued Twitter, certainly. And it's not to say like Twitter was perfect before Elon Musk, but certainly now it seems like all the safeguards are gone. So we could just not... We can't trust anything uh, Twitter says anymore as a news source, which is something I know a lot of people are using Twitter for. I just can't trust it. Like, how do you feel at this point, Sam? I think in a really kind of unfortunate and depressing way, this is sort of what Elon's been going for the whole time, just by removing all the safeguards and all the content moderation teams at Twitter. Um, and I think, like... It's almost like this re kind of weird sadistic experiment to see how far you can push what is truly like an unmoderated social media platform. And unfortunately, we're witnessing that firsthand. It's uh, it's truly sad. I, I also want to shout out a, a great uh, newsletter from Ryan Broderick, a, a former guest on this show, um, over at Garbage Day. It's titled, This is What an Unmoderated Internet Looks Like. And I think he raises a lot of good points here. It's just like... Social media networks for the past uh, decade and beyond, I think, have been trying to do something about misinformation. And ever since Elon Musk took over Twitter, and certainly now um, at other sites, it looks like just that goal is not there anymore. Threads specifically, like uh, Meta executives have said, like Threads is not fo focusing on nudes. It's uh, news. It's not uh, focusing on like anything divisive. It wants things to be. It wants you to have a happy time. It wants you to have a fun time over threads. Uh, don't talk, don't worry about news. Don't worry about potential wars and fire off countries. Let's just share, you know, the latest memes and yeah, yeah. build build your brand up. Build your brand. You know, you know uh, sell sell some merch. Get some sponsors. But as far as like news and you know uh, important current topics, uh, maybe you know not the right. Maybe place. not the right place. Uh, any social media, honestly. I uh, there were a lot of reports, reports about younger folks using TikTok to find news. Right, there are TikTok reporters who are out there just like basically explaining news and doing what, what like uh, entry level reporters typically do. A recent study that Neiman Lab reported on also says like the news will not find you on TikTok. It's honestly kind of a wasteland. Um, they're pointing to a specific study here uh, out of uh, 6,568 videos studied by a bot. Uh, only six could could be actually classified as news. The rest and some of those were two different videos that were shown multiple times. The rest were, you know, crazy TikTok, um, you know, reactions to it or 
a lot of like misinformation that was landing here. So TikTok will not save you either. Like you just kind of have to go to direct news sources, it seems. Um, get your RSS feeds cleaned up. Have you tried Artifact at all, Sam? Like I, I bring this up sometimes. I have not. That's that's the like new app from uh isn't it from the former Reddit executives, I believe? Or no, Instagram executives, the original Instagram folks. Um, that's the news app that's trying to like give you a curated experience and gamifying things a little. And I found that to be kind of useful. It does highlight things. And it's at least I'm not getting garbage, right? I'm not getting pure misinformation there. So that's something. You can also curate like the sites and sources you want to get news from. So yeah, it is a shame to see what's happened to Twitter and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. Another story I want to bring up, uh, we briefly mentioned also during the FTC trial, like some information was leaked out about how much Google is paying Apple to keep Google search as its default option on the iPhone. Um, I think initially the numbers the uh, the Fed the Fed was talking about was like up to ten billion dollars. It seemed more like five billion. But now another report, which uh, the Register is reporting on here, um, says that it could actually be between eighteen to twenty billion dollars, which seems to be cl- that's a lot, that's a lot of, money. of money. That is, uh, let me see here. That is fourteen to sixteen percent of Apple's annual operating profits, and that amount of money sort of like solidifies like why would why would apple say no to this you know why would apple ever develop its own search engine why would apple ever give you the choice to do this because it is just they are just printing money be- just by having google there that's just kind of wild yep. to me it, it, mm-hmm. i mean it's it's pretty much just free money it's free money yeah it's free money i mean apple doesn't not typically like sell its screen space but in this case it's not like they have a good search engine option of their own either. It, there were reports that they were working on one. There were reports we talked about last week that Microsoft was trying to sell Bing to to Apple. But you know, buying Bing is is spending money to get a thing that would not earn you eighteen to twenty billion dollars a year. And I wouldn't be surprised if you know, in the background, Apple is taking some of that money and you know, diverting it at to at a you know to a team within Apple who may be you know doing development on their own search. You know, not going to come out anytime soon, but, you know, there have been some rumors uh, about something like that. So, hey, you take all this money and you're able to channel it into your own R&D and, you know, some maybe one of these days you don't have to take that money and you, you have your own product that, you know, hey. Can you earn can, that uh, much? I don't know. Like that's. <laughs> maybe maybe not earn that much, but at least put a dent in Google's like extreme monopoly on the search market. I, I, I almost feel like this would be this would be the reason why, especially with like um, the government looking closer, like how Google is managing these contracts. Eventually, Apple may have to be like, well, maybe we can't do this anymore. Um, or at least maybe there we can't, uh, you know, legally take this money to make Google the priority. Maybe we should give people a choice, but also maybe it's more worth it to do our own thing somehow. And there are reports about that in terms of like how spotlight search works on Macs and iPhones too. So, you know, Apple is doing its own thing, but it's not a web crawler. It's not as powerful as what Google's doing. I almost wonder, like, what do you, people are positioning the future of search as sort of like the generative AI stuff, Sam, but I almost wonder there's so much other content out there, right? Nothing is really indexing what is inside YouTube videos. Nothing is indexing the content of podcasts. And I feel like that's something that I would like to see at some point too, right? And I think this is all like sort of we're seeing that like evolution of search is like, hey, what, what, is Google going to apply AI to this to try to make – and you can kind of see this in terms of like you know, using search to find sources and then aggregate them in a more digestible way. And so – 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it, this is all kind of like how search is evolving over time into being just not just a way to find content or a way to, you know, find the location of a restaurant, but as like a way to, you know, learn how to compare things and yeah, and as a shopping tool and pretty much everything else. It's kind of like it is funny how much stuff is on the internet now that we just cannot find anymore. Not just because they're in like walled gardens, right? Because you know, social media networks don't always open their stuff up. But uh, yeah, it is a podcast, especially something I've been thinking about as somebody who's been podcasting for a while. Wasn't Google's initial mission to like index everything, like index all the information in the world. And that it seems like if you're going to do that, you have to figure out a way to con- like see what's going on inside audio and video as well. So, yeah, anyway, I mean, that, that plays right into Google's like language recognition and all that, because, hey, if you can run every podcast on the Internet through a tool and get a transcription suddenly it's a lot easier to index. I wonder if the failure of Google Books, like remember Google Books, like the initial thing was, we're just going to scan all the books. And then, uh, what was it? The Authors Guilds, I believe. Yeah. Like, just really there, 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 there was a lot of, like, some copyright and legality issues around that. And yeah, that, that put a big uh, wrench in the, the works. I think they one. pretty much just stopped, uh, at least doing it at a large scale as they used to. So, hey, that door is wide open. That is my secret podcast, uh, my secret startup idea. I make a magical algorithm that could tell you what's happening in the podcast. People will love it. In other news, the FTX trial, the fraud trial, the federal trial against Sam Bankman-Fried is happening right now. And Carolyn Ellison, um, who served as CEO of uh, Alameda, which was the, uh, what was it? That was the trading firm that was kind of tied to FTX. FTX is the crypto firm. Sam Beckman-Fried founded both. Uh, Carolyn Ellison has been on the witness stand for the past two days talking about her experience. And really just, uh, it's, it's worth reading the New York Times like breakdown of this stuff, but really saying that Sam Beckman-Fried pretty much directed her to commit a lot of these crimes, specifically the whole thing about taking money from FTX and putting it into Alameda, um, basically taking customer money, not really telling people what was happening, um, just lying, basically outright lying with where this money is coming from, uh, bribing Chinese executives uh, or bribing Chinese officials to release some money that they also had uh, in some crypto exchanges. Uh, a lot of things, a lot of bad things. And also Carolyn Nelson, the headlines, a lot of people are also running with like, she was his one time girlfriend too. Like it's a weird relationship. He was also her boss, just a weird thing. But I think it's worth reading what is happening with this trial because I remember why I didn't know who Sam Bankman fried was. And now all of a sudden, like he is one of the greatest uh, financial criminals we've ever had in America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He right up there with like Bernie Madoff, like right he's, up there. you know, he's, yeah. There's a lot of reporting that if he if he's convicted, he could be he could end up serving life in prison for the amount of money that he ended up uh, outright stealing there. So, yeah, we're paying attention to that. Uh, there will likely be some coverage on Gadget. We just haven't been following it day to day. In gadget-related news, though, Sony announced a smaller PlayStation Five w- with a detachable disc drive. These were all rumored earlier this year. I believe we even brought it up a couple of times. But uh, yeah, new PS5s. It's a PS5 Slim. Uh, Sony says uh, it is has 30% lower volume and it's 18% uh, lighter than the original. So there is a new digital version, which has no disc drive once again. But the full price, the $500 version, has a removable uh, 4K Blu-ray drive that kind of clips onto the side. If you buy the digital one, which is now more expensive, it's $450. You can also buy the drive separately um, for 80 bucks and just clip it on down the line. So 
Okay. Um, kind of what we were expecting. Any surprises here, Sam? Any thoughts on one, on this hardware? Um, some some small positives is that you now get a one terabyte SSD as storage, as opposed to like the weird eight hundred and like seventy something gig one on the so original. Weird. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a small positive. Um, and the, the interesting thing is like the design is still basically the same shape, which is like I don't even know what to call that shape. It's just like swervy. It looks like drapes um, to yeah. me. That's that's how that's Feature how I described it. Having a smaller PS Five is is great because that the original one is huge. So it's big. No complaints. It's smaller, likely because they were able to to use uh you know uh smaller chips, more efficient chips to deliver the same amount of power. We do want to point out, I think the one of the fatal flaws of the original PlayStation 5 is you still kind of need a stand to even sit it horizontally because of the weird shape mm-hmm. of this whole thing. And yes, you will still, <laughs> there is still a stand <laughs> to lay this thing down horizontally. Like, so you did not learn their lesson there. Um, just kind of funny. There is a vertical stand compatible with all PS5 models for $30. So I guess that's a new stand that's going to be rolling out. Okay, anyway, PS5 Slim. Kind of cool. Kind of cool. Exactly what we we're expecting. Also, briefly, I want to mention uh, we wrote about California's right to repair bill is now California's right to repair law. Uh, Governor Newsom signed the legislation on Tuesday of this week, and uh, it's been years that we've been writing about this and getting this up there. Um, certainly organizations like iFixit have been supporting this for a while. And something we had mentioned last week, too, um, the whole thing about Google offering uh, replacement parts and, you know, support for Pixel 8s for seven years is kind of tied to this because uh, basically devices, uh, anything over $100 will have to be covered by um, a seven-year, not warranty, but a seven-year term for replacement parts from companies and violating that could cost up to $1,000 per day, $2,000 for the second day, you know, $5,000 afterwards. So California is also making it... Um, making it a big deal for companies to actually support their hardware and make it easy for you to repair them. That's a good thing overall. Are you like, do you, have you fixed any of your smaller gadgets on your own, Sam? Um, I, I replaced the black, uh, the back glass on an old Samsung phone a while back. And, uh, this was like a S seven or an S eight. And back then getting parts was like, you had to go on like Alibaba and get them like order yeah, them from yeah, China because yeah. they weren't available anywhere else. So just having that is just like, okay, that's really, really nice. Um, you know, it's important to note that like the law doesn't go into effect until uh, July 1st of 2024. So there is going to be a little gap until, you know, when uh, things start to really take effect. Um, and for gadgets under $100, um, device makers have to stock replacement parts for three years uh, instead of seven. Seven's for you know more more expensive gadgets like smartphones, laptops, what have. That's you. something, and I also believe like some things are not included, like game consoles, right? Um, yeah, let me see here: game consoles, alarm systems, heavy industrial equipment that quote vitally affects the general economy of the state, public interest, and public welfare are not included in this uh, in the right to repair law. So. Yeah, uh, I guess those were carverts that were necessary to get this thing to pass. But hey, good news for California. I'm looking forward to this becoming federal legislation eventually, if we could ever make that happen. That would be wonderful. Let's move on to what we're working on. Sam, uh, I know you have a couple things in mind. What do you want to shout out? Yeah, um, well, I'm, I'm working on a foldable phone review that I can't quite talk about yet. Um, but uh, if, you know, if you've been pay, uh, paying attention to the leaks and rumors, you might have a guess what it is. And maybe have time to sneak in a, another video game review. Um, but we'll ha- you, hopefully you'll, we'll have more on that on the site next week. Gotcha. Cool. And I want to say um, I'm still in VR land after you know reviewing the Quest 3. I have the big screen beyond VR headset. 
which is less a headset and more like a a pair of like just digital glasses that slip onto my head. They are so light. And so it's just wild, like how these things actually work. So I'll have more thoughts on them soon, especially coming from a company known for doing a VR app. It is crazy to see this hardware actually out in the wild. Uh, do want to shout out um, our e-commerce team. Amazon Prime Day was this week, uh, actually throughout the week. And our commerce team uh, selected a lot of cool deals. So we've got a lot of good coverage of this stuff. So stay tuned to Engadget for all those things. And if you missed um, any of them, I do believe like some of them, if you're a Prime member, like they, it's not just like one day. You can actually go back and get some of the deals uh, afterwards. So go check out all of our coverage there. And uh, didn't you do the Sony Buds as well, Sam? Yeah, I also did a quick hands-on with uh, Sony's new InZone earbuds. And those are kind of interesting because they have the same drivers as the Sony... And I can never... Sony, please fix this name. It's like the XF1000, X1000 X5s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have the same drivers and um, you know similar uh, ANC technology, so really good noise canceling. Um, the one issue is that the case is like lo- weirdly very Huge. large, um, and it doesn't have uh, wireless charging uh, supported, so you can only charge it with a you know USB cable. Um, but it's interesting because I think you know if you just want one pair of earbuds that you can use with everything, and you are a big gamer, you might actually be interested in something like the InZone Buds, just because hey, they come with a dedicated USB dongle, so you can plug it into your uh, PS5 or your PC. And then you have a dedicated 2.4 uh, gigahertz uh, audio channel. But it also works with Bluetooth LE, so you can use it with your phone. And that, that's kind of nice because I just left it connected to Bluetooth on my phone, like you would on a regular pair of earbuds. And then I had I could switch over um, to the dongle for you know lower, lower latency, higher quality audio, um, wireless audio. And that was really nice. That's kind of cool. That's, it's weird that it is a whole separate model than like their their actual high-end uh you know premium earbuds but i'd hope to see some of these features in those eventually but it's cool yeah this is uh intriguing i always love sony's headphone stuff let's move on to our pop culture picks for the week i just want to quickly shout out like hey i finished ahsoka we talked about ahsoka when that thing started and i think briefly in mid-season i think i, I started to like it more i think it's still a weird um narrative mess you know, from Dave Filoni, who has been responsible for for a lot of the Star Wars animated stuff uh, since the late 2000s. But there's also like enough cool stuff there, like enough cool lightsaber battles and great imagery and you know, great character work, I think, from a lot of people involved that make it worth watching. I just really wish those first two episodes weren't so inscrutable because really, uh, even the finale, like they don't care. If you did not watch the uh, the cartoon, they they hinge yeah. a lot. Yeah, they hinge a lot on your previous knowledge of you know rebels and uh, you know the, some of the animated shows, and so it can be. My my wife ran into this especially because she hasn't seen those shows, and so she was just like she kind of yeah. tuned Why out. Why should on I the care about episodes. a lot of this? Yeah, and then once she had gotten into some of the newer characters in the episodes and like had gotten more context around the like you know the returning ones, she started to get into it more. And then like you know as you got to the end of the show, it's like. Oh hey, like I actually wanted to see more from those characters, and then you know the, the the season one's over. But hey, I think hopefully it seems like they set it up to really transition into a season two uh, very well. I hope so. I hope it's like it can stand on its own because to me that link to the to the animated shows. I love great animated shows. Like I love continuity like that. It's it just feel like it did not do the work to kind of really connect things. So there there is that. Uh, check out Ahsoka. Certainly check out Andor if you haven't seen that yet. Uh, it is nice to see star like good Star Wars stuff around. Certainly better than that last season of Mandalorian. Certainly better than the Boba Fett show. My one like issue with like the Star Wars is that like 
the whole when Disney bought Star Wars and they they completely non canonized a bunch of stuff, and now they're bringing back some, some of the aspects, characters yeah. from the old like leg- legacy legends content, and they're just like it feels a lot like what Disney is doing with MCU, but it's like it just doesn't feel. It feels a little bit ham-fisted sometimes for anyone who has been a longtime fan of the the pre-Disney Star Wars content. It's uh, it's confusing, but at least you know what's going on. I feel like the longtime fans are at least better equipped right now to, to understand what's going on. What do you want to shout out, Sam? What have you been watching? I know you uh, you probably talked about this a while back, but I'm finally getting a chance to dive into Miss Davis, nice. which is just like a weird bonkers. I, I appreciate the weirdness, and I think that's what I really like. It's just like off the wall kind of crazy and you know but also like weirdly topical with having this omniscient ai overlord um and so i'm you know i'm only a few episodes in but i'm really enjoying it so far awesome and yeah this is a show by the way starring betty gilpin she is playing a nun who is fighting ai nun versus ai on on the quest for the holy grail quest for the holy grail certainly of course she is um it, it, it's a funny year for this to come out because I also think the creator has a lot of this too. And I did not like the creator as much as I like the bonkersness of this show. So yeah. I, I want to watch the creator because I think it looks great, but like, you know, you've mentioned that some of some issues with the plot and the theming, watch it. It's so. worth seeing in theater. Cause it does look beautiful. Okay. Like it's worth doing yep. a matinee. If you can sneak out, uh, we will not tell anybody that you're out watching movies. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So I'm glad you're liking Mrs. Davis. Everybody check it out. It is on Peacock. That's it for our episode this week, folks. Our theme music is by game composer Dale Noy. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elliman, who occasionally chats on the podcast, too. You can find me online at, at Devendra on Twitter. Um, I will never say X. Also on Mastodon and Blue Sky and all those fun things. Where can we find you, Sam? Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Sam Rutherford and, of course, on Engadget.com. And where can we find you, Ben? Find me on literally my email. Just send me an email at benelman.wave that's w-a-v at gmail.com I feel like that's cheating we're here to pump our socials Ben email us at podcastingandgadget.com leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts thanks folks we're out